Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast, where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Richard Rodriguez. His new book is Darling. It's published by Viking. And one of the first things that we'll talk about is that there's a distinction, I think, between memoir and personal essay. And the essays in Darling rely a lot on the same things that memoir relies on, but it would not be, I think, 100% accurate to say that this book is a memoir in, in that sense. That's right. I, most, of, most of my writing, and this is not humility, it's just that I have a sense of, the, of an impatient reader that I can't imagine merely describing my life. It doesn't, it does, my life is not interesting enough to myself. Uh, so even rendered artistically or stylishly, I can't imagine people being interested in the life itself. So I began writing about public issues, but writing about them autobiographically. My confrontation, for example, my, my writing began in the 1980s with hunger of memory over the issue of affirmative action. I had just left teaching in protest against affirmative action because I was being rewarded, I thought, for being different at a time in which education had made me the same. And so my pose as a minority intellectual or a minority scholar was false. It was just, it was, it was contradictory. The, the way I had educated, I'd been educated was out of, of minority consciousness. So what to do with that idea? Well, I, I began to write an educational memoir but uh, about how I came to be, how I moved through a Spanish-speaking childhood, uh, was educated by Irish nuns, the Sisters of Mercy, brilliantly educated, I think, by them, uh, lovingly educated, but fiercely also, how I came to be in college and so forth. That's, that's interesting to me and maybe to my parents, but it's not, I don't think it's interesting to very many people. When it became clear that I had a, a sort of architecture for this book, I began to write within the memoir, uh, this analysis of affirmative action, and then bilingual education. And at that point, when people refer to hunger of memory, they refer to it, the ideas in it, that is, I disagree with Richard Rodriguez on his position about language, about family language in the classroom and so forth. Right, because it's harder to disagree with somebody about their life That's if, right. if you if you weren't actually there watching right. it with them. But Do, do I get that sometimes? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, people say, I just don't like you. <laughs> I remember once being at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and this Latina got up and she said, you know, I've been waiting for 10 years to say in public that you're screwed up, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, of course I'm screwed up. Why, why do you think I, I, I write for a living, you know? <laughs> Writers are not normal. That we, you know, there is an abnormality to, to the life that, that makes us very difficult in private, but also makes us, I think, sometimes interesting on paper. Talking about finding that structure that, allows you to talk about public issues and, and your personal life in that first book. In in the new book, Darling, one of the overarching public issues that a lot of the essays touch upon is religion in the post-9-11 world. Yes, indeed. I mean, I, this book began in my mind after September 11th when I realized that those terrorists, uh, before their, their 757 Boeing jets crashed into the World Trade Center and to the Pentagon, those terrorists were praying. And they were praying to Allah, but they were uh, Allah is another name for the same God that I worship, the God of the Christians, who is also the God of the Jews, Yahweh. And at that point, I began to wonder about what it means to be religious, what it means that I, that I am religious. 
the nobility of it, the consolation of it in my life, it easily turns from my God, a, hum a statement of humility, to my God, a statement of possession, where God becomes mine, and I can use him as an, as a, as an, as an instrument against you. It was with that idea that I began to travel to the Middle East. And I wasn't looking for myself, curiously enough, but I did find myself. For example, the first chapter, which is called Ohala, in my listening to Arabic, which is a difficult language, I began to hear traces of Spanish. And I thought, that's odd. I thought, you know, so much Spanish I was hearing, or memories of Spanish, or shadows of Spanish in these words. And then, I, of course, I realized that for centuries, Spain was a Muslim country. And there are something like three to 4,000 Spanish words which are etymologically Arabic. And so the closer I got to Arabic, oddly enough, the closer I got to my mother, <laughs> because I began to hear my mother using expressions like ojala, which is in Spanish, it translates roughly to, let's hope so, or something like that. Ojala, the, the weather will be nice when you come home from school and we can go to the store, you know, and get your new, new running shoes or something. Ojalá the doctor will give me good news today when I go up and see what my tests were like. Well, ojalá comes and listen to the word, ojalá. Allah is on my mother's lips. Something that I didn't know when I heard it often enough. And I doubt that my mother knew that when she spoke it, ojalá. So that this, this, this confrontation with the stranger, oddly enough, becomes a confrontation with my, with my own life. Specifically, it's a contraction of the Islamic phrase, inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah, that's right. Which there are so many ways that, you know, in English we say God willing yes. as that kind of placeholder yes. all the time. Yes. To realize those kinds of connections yes. across language and across culture yes. is one of the things that this quest seems to have un unfurled for you. Some of my critics will say, well, you know, you, you keep confusing issues. You keep, you keep inserting this autobiographical layer on these public issues. And it's, it's hard for me to know which I'm responding to. But in some way, for me, ideas are fleshy. And how I come to have an idea, in many cases, is the story of my life. Or to put it another way, I regard the essay as the biography of an idea. How I came to know this, or how this idea came to me. And in that sense, you know, I, there's a chapter called Darling, uh, in this book called Darling, which is about my relationship as a gay man to heterosexual women. And it is a, it's a long relationship. I, my closest friends over the years have been women. I started as, as a boy liking girls, liking to talk to girls, but knowing that already that was a signal to other boys that I was probably queer, that they, there was something too, 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 too happy about the way I, I chatted with girls and the company we kept. Well, it continued into my adulthood, and this, this long chapter is an address to a woman, a friend of mine in Los Angeles, on the day that her divorce was finalized, and we had lunch in Malibu, and she took offense. She needed something that day, more than the term that I used for her, which was darling, a sort of the gay interior decorator term in Beverly Hills, <laughs> you know, darling, that, you know, that beige just has to go, you know, that sort of thing. And I always called her darling, but that day, it didn't suit her. And the, the, the chapter begins with a quarrel between us when she's just angry at darling, I didn't know when I began thinking about that chapter. I thought it was going to be about my homosexuality and the desert religions, which is what I call 
uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. They originated in the desert. And while I call myself a Roman Catholic, after September 11th, now I'm realizing I'm a desert Catholic. But I, I thought when I started working on Darling that the idea that I was pursuing had something to do with gay marriage. But as the chapter developed in, in my reworkings, it became more and more clear to me that that chapter was about women and secondarily about myself as a gay man. To put it another way, though, it was about my relationship as a, as a gay man to heterosexual women at a moment of their em emancipation. After September 11th, the Reverend Jerry Falwell said that, among others, that he blamed for the catastrophe of, of September 11th, uh, the wrath of God that descended on New York and Washington. He said among those responsible were homosexuals and feminists. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, that little pairing, feminists and homosexual. What is that pairing? Pope Francis recently said, you know, the church has been much too preoccupied with abortion and gay marriage. There it was again, that linkage. And I think to myself that I want to pursue that idea, and but I can only pursue that idea but by taking us back to Malibu, to that lunch we had, and to the club sandwiches we were eating that day overlooking the ocean when she got her divorce. So that the idea happens within the structure of our lunch. That's the way I, that's the way I know, I, because I live. And if you start with the big topic of the relationship between gay men and straight women, starting on it at a macro level, it's it's easier to fall into that trap of the cliche or, as you said, the stereotypical yes. darling. But by rooting it in personal experience, it enables you to dig down deeper and to say something significant about that relationship. And, and then, as you said, to, to find ways in which you realize that it's like, oh, well, I'm actually talking about other things, too, including how my relationship with straight women is inextricably linked to my relationship with the Catholic Church yes, for, for yes. a variety of reasons. Yes. And I mean, you, you know, one of the arguments I make in that chapter is that my emancipation as a gay man out of the closet was due in no small part to the suffragette movement of the 19th century, to women leaving the parlor, parading in the streets of Europe for the vote, for equality in the public realm with men. That move out of the privacy of the home and that insistence on a, on a public identity in the, civic, in the civic life predates and anticipates my own movement out of the closet. There is in New York, you know, this, this pop history that uh, says that the gay movement begins with the Stonewall riots in the 1970s. I don't think that's true. I think it begins earlier, and I think it begins with women claiming equality with men. And certainly I think that that's the linkage that I draw now with this, this, this pairing of the homosexual and the feminist in the church's imagination. You mentioned Francis earlier, and it's, it's worth noting that the essays in Darling were written in the tail end of the Benedict era. That's right, that's right. But what has been your sense over these last few months, given your, I, I suppose we should start with, your relationship with the church as a gay man who is still religiously faithful and still a, a faithful member of the Catholic Church. And then we can segue from there to what you've noticed about Francis's reign. Well, I mean, uh, the church has always fed me more than it has withheld from me. And in that sense, I, I am loyal to the church. I have great many friends who are priests, and, and, and I'm, I'm enormously grateful to the Catholic Church for providing my education for teaching me, for letting me on the altar as a little boy, an altar boy. You know, I, I officiated or I served at, at many, many weddings and many, many funerals as a boy. And that proximity to, to real life experience as a 10-year-old was astonishing. There was nothing else going on 
in Sacramento, California, that was remotely as interesting as going to a funeral for a man who had been found dead in a hotel room and then carrying, helping to carry his casket to an open, an open hole in the ground on a spring morning and then going back to an arithmetic lesson at Sacred Heart School, you know. What more was, what more could I ask of a, an institution? In some way, my relationship to some of the earlier popes, I think of John Paul II and the way he died in public as an extraordinary, I write about that in, in, in Darling in a chapter called Transit Alexander and the, the sentimentality of the green ecology movement, which in my estimate refuses to acknowledge the brownness of nature and the fact that it's one thing to celebrate spring, but we also have to acknowledge the necessity of fall. And it seems to me that to only celebrate birth and the newness of nature, the freshness of nature, the greenness of nature, and not to admit to, to the harvest and to the withering and to the fallow field, it seems to me, is childish. And that chapter really ends with this, oh, I don't know, a, a kind of litany of various lives. John Paul is one of them, dying in front of us, drooling in front of us, his head at an angle as he's, he's carried on a wagon down the center aisle of St. Peter's Cathedral, a St. Peter's Basilica. I thought when I saw that, you know, in a day and age in which we put away the old people to die in, in the dark, this, this public manifestation by a man who had been very beautiful as a young actor in Poland, his, his dying in front of us was a great gift, I thought. That's not what you asked me. What you asked me was about Francis. Well, I think Francis is so far so good. I mean, he did not say, by the way, as we all gush over him, he did not say in, in saying the church has been pre too preoccupied with gay marriage and abortion. He did not uh, diverge from the church's orthodox position on either of those issues. I do not expect in my lifetime to be ever acknowledged in a church on an altar as having a relationship in love with another man over 30 years. And we are accustomed to that to that diffidence of the church but on the other hand i mean most of the people in our parish see us as a, as a couple uh, and accept us as a couple and we live within that sort of odd disapproval of the institution but that easy approval of, of the parish you touch upon that in that essay that idea of the church's position isn't just about gay marriage because if it were simply about like oh well okay here's this institution called marriage and you can't be a part of it that would not be acceptable per se but it it's more acceptable than what the church's position actually drills down to which is that you are homosexual and therefore incapable of love that's right the, 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 the real problem with with the church's position and this is where women are now coming against the church is that it, it equates love with with the creation of children you know, St. Augustine famously said that the, the primary reason for, for love, that is making love, is, is children. Secondarily is pleasure. Well, when you have an institution, and this is, we get back to the desert with this idea. You know, the desert religions begin with the, the visit of God to Abraham and the promise to a dry old man, a man who is as dry as the desert, that he will be fertile. And this notion that comes into, into Judaism and then Christianity borrows it, and Islam takes it also, that the consolation of God in the desert is children. The tribe will be increased. Usually it comes with the promise of a son. And children as numerous as the stars in the sky. And if you've ever been to the desert, you will see a sky that is unbelievably writ, uh, uh, lit by the stars. When you have that, that preoccupation of desert people with one, the tribe, because you're, you don't live in the desert by yourself. You live as a member of a tribe. And two, with increase, 
with the increase of the tribe over time. You relegate the woman, A, to motherhood, not that that isn't the central purpose of her identity uh, in many cases, but you also say that, that beyond that, she has no purpose. And that's where women now, are, I think, are really objecting to the, to the patriarchal organization of these desert religions. What I see in the Middle East, you know, the woman driving in Riyadh today, um, risking a, a, a rest because she's driving by herself, or Malala going to school in Pakistan, even when she has been threatened and being shot in the head, you know. This attack on women seeking out roles other than the, the familial roles seems to me to be really crucial to the revolution I see coming with an organized religion. I think women are really, really forming if not an alternate religion, an alternate understanding of God, in which God is not simply male, as Abba, traditionally, that he who gives life, or that which gives life, but an understanding of life which is both feminine and masculine. I mean, how, how does the sperm create itself without the egg, you know? And in that sense, I think certainly the uneasiness in the Vatican about orders of nuns these days is in some sense justified, because women are getting are way ahead of us, the rest of us, in their religious understanding about where women are and, and how to understand a woman. Now, as you've pursued these commonalities between the three desert religions, you've come up against some resistance, not just from other people of faith who you know want to, for whatever reason, preserve those sharp lines of difference between their faith and other faiths, but you also write a lot about the kind of the pushback from atheists that you've been getting as you've been talking about these ideas over the last decade. Yeah, most of my friends are atheists. My, my brother, my beloved brother, is not only an atheist, he's an anti-theist. The word atheism doesn't hold enough contempt for him, so he's invented the word anti-theist. One grows accustomed to that to, 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 to some degree, but I, I keep warning my friends who are not religiously inclined that we live in a world that is aflame with religion and that simply to trust you know, Christopher Hitchens and the new atheism as a description of, of what is going on in the world. Um, Hitchens leaves London for New York where he is celebrated because he has an English accent, but he leaves London at a time in which London in, is not being, God is not dead in London. Islam and Hinduism are on the rise in London. And the colonialists come back to England and, and brought, brought his religion to, to England. And so in some sense, the, the Englishman feels himself pushed away. And so they all descend on New York with the, with the new atheism. The problem with, with all of this is just that it doesn't account for, it doesn't, it isn't sympathetic enough. And I don't mean that in, 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 in compassion, but in, in understanding to what is going on in the world. For example, Two GIs in an airbase in Afghanistan come upon a Quran in the prison library, and there is annotation in the margin in Arabic, which of course the soldiers don't read. And there is this decision, because their the suspicion is that the prisoners are exchanging messages to each other, which they probably are, but they could be pious messages, and that this 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 text the soldiers decide should be destroyed, so they throw it into the fire. Well, that causes <laughs> that causes a great scandal in the Middle East. A nun is killed in North Africa. A priest is killed in Cairo by mobs because this is an act of, of, of blasphemy against the the Koran. And what you have, I think, in 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 a world in which increasingly, for people in the West who are secular, and I mean that uh, 
who have no imagination of religion. You have people who have no idea that the text, the religious text, has weight. Its very meaning is, the, is its weight in your hands. So that the Word made flesh for Christians is the, 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 the text that you hold. I've seen people in the Middle East kiss the sacred, the sacred Word. I've seen them hold it to their chest uh, like a lover. And if it is dropped, if you drop the, the Torah in the synagogue, the synagogue is p penalized as a group for that, that thing. We live in a world in which increasingly we can delete words with, with a button, in which words are kind of fluid uh, that run across a computer screen. And I don't think we understand that for many people in the world, the experience of the word is quite different. For our own survival, it seems to me, we should know more about these religions. I was thinking about you know, the end to the recent government shutdown and how the night that the House was finally hammering out its compromise. In the middle of the proceedings, there was that stenographer who went up to the dais and started announcing that this was never a nation under God. And the immediate interpretation of that, of course, was that she was having a nervous breakdown yeah. in public. Yeah. And then the next day, her husband goes to, I forget which media outlet, and basically says, no, she's been wrestling with a call from the Holy Spirit for the last two weeks to go out and say that. Again, there are a lot of people in the secular perspective who would say, well, yeah, okay, she thinks she's wrestling with the Holy Spirit, but she had a me mental breakdown. But if you refuse to take that seriously, then what is your interpretation, say, of the story of Jeremiah? Yeah. or the story of Jonah. Yeah. And I actually asked that on Twitter, and an atheist friend of mine said, well, yeah, they were nuts too. <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. at least we're consistent here. Well, you know, there's a chapter, the last chapter of the book, which is about the three ecologies of the desert and how central they are to the experience of these religions. Uh, the mountaintop, the desert plain, where the Jews wander for 40 years, I call it the the ecology of Kvetch. When are we going to get there? You know, are we far yet? And the cave. The cave is interesting because, a, 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 you know, Plato writes this, this description of the cave is basically the, the habitat of, of ignorant people who are confused by the, what they see on, on, the, on the wall. But in fact, the interesting thing about these desert religions is that these are desert people who are blinded by the light. And the, the hardest thing to do is to see in midday when the light is brightest. There are no sunglasses in this, in this world. So a lot of the, the insight comes with sunset and with darkness. The Prophet Muhammad has his illumination in the dark, in, a, in the dark of a cave. Jesus is born in a cave is, and, and dies in a cave and is resurrected in a cave. Moses is protected by God from the brilliance of God's presence by being put in a cave as he passes. Well, this is really interesting to me, partly because I don't think atheists understand as they become more and more fundamentalist that, that doubt and darkness is part of Part of religious life. Indeed, Mother Teresa, who ascends into heaven at the end, at the very end of this book, experienced great, great darkness in her life, and she was mocked for that by Christopher Hitchens, who apparently knew no darkness in his life. But the first aspect of this desert ecology, which is the mountaintop, interested me because uh, Martin Luther King Jr., at the end of his life, uh, talked about the mountaintop. I've been to the mountaintop, you know, the night before he he was assassinated, almost anticipating that death. He is in Memphis speaking to a group of Christians about having seen America from the mountaintop. God has given me this vision. It's a glorious sermon. 
when I was listening to uh, remembering the, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of his speech at the Lincoln Memorial, I remembered how central religion was to America's civic life in the black civil rights movement. And I think we in the, in the cultural left have forgotten that. It was not a theocracy, but it was a recognition that there was nothing they could hold a vent this epic except some reference to religion and to the soul, that the soul of America was being repaired in the streets with we shall overcome. And when, when Martin Luther King Jr. took the podium and Mahalia Jackson, the gospel singer, called out to him, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And he gives a speech, which is a sermon. And we have not, we haven't heard its like since then. I mean, the president, or President Obama, got up at the, at the 50th anniversary and he gave a, a speech about the speech. And the, I, I'll bet you no one can remember anything that he said because it had none of that. We don't talk, politicians don't talk that way anymore. And except for God bless America that the politicians end their speeches with. We don't have a way of announcing within, within the drama of, of our civic life its spiritual shape or its spiritual meaning. And so that whole possibility, it seems to me, dies with the Negro Civil Rights Movement by the time it moves north and becomes something quite different. I'm very interested in that loss, in the, 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 the dampening of the religious imagination and the, um, the flatness of our secular rhetoric. The ways in which you describe the 60s in the book, for example, is saying, I think the phrase that you used was religious idealism. And yeah, that way that we've moved within 50 years to how one of the most progressive left, if you want to call it, get into left-right uh, dichotomies, movements was, as you say, rooted very strongly in a religious understanding Yes. to a point where we are now, where the left has largely seemed to abandon the idea of religious motivation yeah. not only abandon, to the right. Not only abandon, I was going to say, concede religious experience yeah. to the right. And the right has used religion in, in ways that I think are not useful for religious understanding as a political tool and moved us in, in that direction toward a theocratic understanding of, of religion, which is not what I'm arguing for. I'm arguing for a, a sense of, of mystery in our public discussion. I was at a conference, a pen conference a few years ago in New York, and it was, it was the title of the conference was Faith and Reason, by which I think the organizers meant faith as opposed to reason. And there were like 500 writers from all over the world. And I met in that week we were here in New York. I met, I think, only three writers who claimed to have any religious imagination. And I thought to myself, since when do writers attach themselves to, to reason rather than to faith. Faith is a much more interesting to be engaged in. Uh, to, 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 to write within mystery is, is a writerly thing to do. To write within reason seems to me to be, to be not exactly what the, what, the, what the literary enterprise is about. We're engaged in, in mystery. As I say, the, the refusal to, to grant a religious, and I think this has something to do with the, the, the fact that the, the, the left grew less and less preoccupied with issues of class and more and more preoccupied with, it, with, with issues of, its, of sex, abortion and homosexuality, and as much as the churches were. Um, I guess what I, I, I feel sometimes in, in listening to, to people on the left now as they, their, their politics of liberation become so self-centered and have almost no communal aspect is that maybe what we have lost in, in giving up religion in, in this way 
is a, a way of, of using the first person plural pronoun, the we. Certainly, I mean, you asked earlier about Pope Francis, but a number of my secular friends said, but he's very conservative on, on issues of gay liberation and w women's issues. And I said, but he's also very generous in, in the way he speaks about the poor. Doesn't that matter to you as a leftist? You know, Doesn't that matter that, that there are these issues of poverty in the world, that there's so much suffering in the world? Well, but what about you know, my, my right to gay marriage? And I said, what about it? You know, how, could you, how could you want so much for yourself in a world that is so wanting? That failure of imagination on the left, I think, is one of the reasons why the left is also barren and, and without life. And it, it doesn't know where it's going. And if you watch or listen to either cable, television, or radio, you realize just how empty it all is and how without soul, how without soul. When you were talking about the failure of the imagination just now, one of the things that popped into my head is that it actually, in a way, kind of circles back to the whole concept of the essay, which is that kind of mental and emotional self-interrogation and I think in the best essays, a recognition of a larger world outside oneself that one is grappling with. Yes, exactly. If it becomes only uh, solipsistic, it seems to me the essay could be interesting because it's always interesting to watch a madness <laughs> portrayed, but it's not, it's not elevating. It's not ennobling. I need to move these essays outward. If I'm writing about Cesar Chavez, for example, about the struggle in his own life between wanting to be, in some sense, a saint. He wanted to be holy. And a lot of his struggle was to be holy. He did not want a, a union of farm workers in which we would all become middle class. He said, what's the point of that? But he was also an American union leader. And he became famous as a, as a labor organizer. And the struggle of his life was between these two goals. On the one hand, to be a Mexican saint, and an American labor organizer. I think he was a failure as an organizer, but it was also his celebrity. He ended up a stamp in America. He ended up a three-four cent stamp, you know. And we honor him as an American hero in our civic life. But the real struggle in him was toward accepting loss and suffering. And that was something that bewildered a lot of the people that he negotiated with. The, the farmers couldn't figure out what he wanted and the first man said, is this a social movement or is it a labor union, you know? He didn't know, I think. Finally, he, Cesar Chavez didn't know. And he, he achieved less as a union organizer. His union almost has disappeared uh, than he did as this, what shall I say, this haunted man who wanted to know how to connect with people who were suffering. And the stamp became a saint. And in its own way... Now, questioning the efficacy of Chavez as a union organizer is as much a threat to an orthodoxy as suggesting that there's a common ground between Christianity and Islam. I'm sufficiently a bad boy in Latino culture that this is the problem I get. Because most of the people who re remark on cultural events in the Latino world are not interested in, in the struggle of sainthood. They're interested in, in a political discussion. And if I say that Cesar Chavez's ambition was to be a loser, they don't understand what that means. They have no idea what that means because they have no, they have no tradition of, of loss and suffering as a nobling. They don't know what that, what that possibility is. Moving forward, are the ideas that you've been grappling with in Darling 
Yeah, I assume that you continue to grapple with them even now after the book's publication. Yes, yes. But are there other themes that have been emerging that you think you'll be exploring in essays down the line? I don't know. I mean, the the essay keeps writing me in some sense, and so I I, I retain a kind of modesty about my ambitions. I, I will tell you that I'm working all the time, but it seems to me that I'm listening all the time to what this essay wants to become. I worry that as I get older, my writing has become more baroque in some some way, and I'm more I'm very aware now that I I write under the age of Steve Jobs that there are very few newspapers that review books anymore, that there are very few bookstores anymore, the sort of places I might go to for a reading. And increasingly, because I owned a bookstore, in, I was co-owner of a bookstore in San Francisco, uh, which closed a number of years ago. And it closed really because we'd, we lost serious readers. They were just dying off. And the younger generation was not reading that way. I go to colleges all over this country now where teachers tell me, they can no longer assign very many books to a student in a semester, maybe three to read, that the students want to go online, that they, they want to read articles. They, I don't even know whether that's true, that is, whether they read articles anymore. That lack of a serious relationship to a reader who is complicated has made my task really difficult. I assume as a writer that I'm being finished by the reader. That is, the reader finishes my sentence as she understands what I've been saying. Without that reader, my sentence is incomplete. You understand what I'm saying? That there is, even that sentence that I just gave you, do you understand what I'm saying? That is what I'm looking for, to the, for the reader. Do you understand what this, what the sentence just meant? Because if you don't, then I have failed. I have failed you and I failed the enterprise. I hold myself responsible for that. But increasingly, you know, with a book as difficult and it's as layered and as literary and as stylish as darling, you know, I'm quite aware of the fact that that audience is diminishing in the world. And and if I had a 19th century audience, I'd be able to do things with language that I that I now think to myself, will anyone understand this? Increasingly, I'm writing for, you know, a dead reader. And this this notion of writing for an audience that, that keeps teaching me by its response becomes more and more difficult. So I am writing but I don't know whether I assume audience in quite the same way anymore. I hope that there is a continued audience out there for books like Darling. It is a fascinating collection of essays, and if you're listening to this, I encourage you to, to find it and read it. I have been talking with its author, Richard Rodriguez, and I am Ron Hogan, and this has been Life Stories. If you are not subscribed to us in iTunes, you could do that. And if you are subscribed to us in iTunes, I hope that you'll take a moment at some point to rate it and review it. That will help spread the word so that other people can find out about it as well. And I hope you will join us for another episode soon. Thank you for listening. Take care.